Uh, Father in heaven, thank you. Uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift of your people. Uh, I think we've all just been reminded lately of what a gift it is to gather together with your people and how much we need that. God, I pray that you would be with us right now in our gathering, whether it's here in the auditorium or watching the live stream somewhere. Would you please, by your spirit, be speaking to us? Would you soften our hearts to hear what your word has to say? Would you make it so that when we sing, we're not just saying words on a screen, but we're actually expressing deep, heartfelt praise and admiration? Lord, all of that can only happen if your spirit is moving and working within us. And so we pray for that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so kids, four years through fifth grade, you can head to Children's Church. There should be someone in the back there to give you directions as to where to go if you need help. Parents, feel free to walk with them if you need to. So... It was a little more than 100 years ago, it was 1908, and there was a spinning mill in New England, and it was the first American factory to institute a five-day work week. Before that, the standard had been Monday through Saturday, and you had a one-day weekend on Sundays because the prevailing culture was by and large Christian at the time. But that factory had enough Jewish workers that they wanted to accommodate them, but at the same time not alienate their Christian employees. And so they decided to give them both Saturday and Sunday off, which was a a very progressive thought back in the day. It wasn't until a couple of decades later that that two-day weekend became cemented into our economy during the Great Depression. And labor unions had been pushing for it for a while, but the Great Depression is really what pushed the ball forward because that allowed shorter work hours for companies, which means their payroll was smaller, and it helped with unemployment. So what that means is we've had almost 100 years of a two-day weekend here in the United States, but we still haven't figured out how to rest. Most Americans today are still overworked and have no idea how to really find rest for their bodies and their souls. Uh, One recent report suggests that even during the pandemic, non-pandemic-related industries uh, have employees working at home, and if you're working at home, you are statistically maybe working up to three hours extra per day. And so your eight-hour day may have just turned into an 11-hour day. Busyness in our society is a bigger problem than many of us realize or many of us are willing to admit. And so for the last five weeks, we've been talking about the Sabbath. We've been going through that because the Sabbath, created by God, instituted by him at creation, can help us. It is a gift to give our bodies rest and our souls rest. And so that's what we've been talking about for the last several weeks, and today's the last sermon on the Sabbath. So far, we've seen that the Sabbath addresses our basic need to rest and to worship. We've seen that it's woven into the fabric or or baked into the DNA of the cake. DNA of the cake. That's an interesting metaphor. Anyway, it's baked into the cake of creation. Okay, And so the Sabbath was part of the original pattern of time that God created. And that when we embrace it, we're living with the grain of the universe. We've seen that it is both blessed and holy, meaning that it's a gift and an obligation. We've seen the Sabbath as part of the Ten Commandments. We saw Jesus' relationship to the Sabbath, that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, that the Sabbath points to him, and we ultimately find rest not in a day, but in a person. 
And then we saw last week that the Sabbath is a picture of the larger life of rest that Jesus invites us into. And so today, what we're going to do is we're going to finish out the series looking at Psalm chapter 92. Psalms 92. And so if you've got a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it there. Uh, And by the way, if you'd like to listen to any of those past sermons, if you missed them, um, we have a podcast feed on iTunes as well as um, our sermons are all on our website. So you can check those out. Now, the reason I want us to go through Psalm 92 today is because that is the only psalm associated with the Sabbath. It was written specifically for the Sabbath. Now, it's interesting, as we read it, it actually doesn't say anything about the Sabbath. Um, But you'll notice in your Bibles the little subscription where it says Psalm 92, and those little words that usually say something like um, a psalm of David, those are actually part of the original um, manuscripts. And so, Uh, this one says a song, a psalm for the Sabbath day. And this is the only psalm that's associated with it in that way. And so we're going to read through it and walk through it together. Now before I get reading, just a heads up, and uh, some of you may know this, when you see the word LORD in all capitals in your Bible, that's God's covenant name, Yahweh. And so as I'm reading through Psalm 92, you're going to hear me say Yahweh when that comes up, and that's why. And if you want to talk about why that is, um, I'd be glad to address that question later. All right, but here we go, Psalm 92. It'll be on the screen as well. It is good to praise Yahweh and make music to your name, O Most High, to proclaim your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night, to the music of the ten-stringed lyre and the melody of the harp. For you make me glad by your deeds, O Yahweh. I sing for joy at the works of your hands. How great are your works, O Yahweh. How profound your thoughts. The senseless man does not know. Fools do not understand. That though the wicked spring up like grass and all evildoers flourish, they will be forever destroyed. But you, O Yahweh, are exalted forever. For surely your enemies, O Yahweh, surely your enemies will perish. All evildoers will be scattered. You've exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. Fine oils have been poured upon me. My eyes have seen the defeat of my adversaries. My ears have heard the rout of my wicked foes. The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon, planted in the house of Yahweh. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green, proclaiming Yahweh is upright. He is my rock, and there is no wickedness in him. So that's Psalm 92. It's a good psalm. This psalm is what's called a chiasm. Now, a chiasm uh, is something that happens actually throughout the Bible, all over the place. My problem is I can never recognize them without someone pointing it out to me. Now, for, um, for a bit of information, a chiasm is, think about it, it's a literary tool. So think about it like a pyramid, where you've got something at the top, and that's kind of like the climax or the peak. And then you have like staircases on either side leading up to it. And each one of those steps mirrors each other. Okay, and so let me put this on the screen. I can show you uh, Psalm 92 as a chiasm on the screen. So what you have 
is verses 1 through 5 and verses 10 through 15 mirroring each other. And they do that either by a common theme or common words. And then the next step is talking about the wicked, okay? Verses 6 and 7 and then verse 9. And then at the very top, the center or the peak, the climax of the psalm is verse 8, That is actually mathematically the center. In the Hebrew word count, that is the exact center of the psalm. Uh, But thematically, it's also the center. And so what the author is doing is he's trying to subtly direct your attention to verse 8. But you, O Yahweh, are exalted forever. And so that's what everything in this psalm is revolving around. It's either leading up to that or coming out of that. And it's all mirroring each other. And so what I want to do is just kind of look at some of those steps. And so step one comes with verse one. It says that it is good to praise Yahweh and to do it on all kinds of instruments. The ten-string lyre, the melody of the harp. Some of your translations might throw a third instrument in there. So for those of you who grew up in the 80s and love synthesizers in worship music, this is your biblical justification, okay? Or if you want a guitar, go for it, all right? It's there, Make music to Yahweh. It's good. And it's not good just in the sense that it's the appropriate thing, that it's the correct and fitting thing, okay? It is good, it is good in that way. He is exalted and we are his creation, so it is good. It's just right for us to worship him. But it's also good in the sense that it is a joyful, happy, life-giving thing to give our minds and our bodies to the articulation of God's goodness and his glory. It's good for us to do that to each other. And so the Bible tells us to sing songs to one another about God's goodness. And so when we sing on Sunday mornings, we're not just singing to God. We are, certainly. But we're also doing that to encourage one another. It's good to do that. Now, remember, this is not just a mere recitation of the facts. This is not just reading the words on the screen as they come up. This is life-giving, liberating, joy-inducing praise. And the Bible says that is a good thing to do. And it's good to do it all the time. Notice verse 2. It says it's good to do it in the morning and at night, from dusk till dawn, dawn till dusk. And that's when things are good, when things are bad. It's not talking just about days. It's talking about all the time. So it's good to do it in September and October. It's good to do it in the fall, winter, spring, and summer. It's good to do it when things in your life are going great. It's good to do it when things in your life are not going great. Now, it's not to do away with lament or sadness. Okay, the Bible gives us plenty of justification for bringing those emotions before God. But even in that we can still praise like Job did in his own darkness. Now that morning and night language might also be a very subtle reference back to creation. Right? The psalm has already been connected with the Sabbath, which was started in creation. He's talking about the works of his hands, which will be creation. And so this morning-evening discussion might be calling back evening-morning the first day evening, morning, the second day. Just a very subtle nod back to creation. And then notice what the psalmist says. He says, you cause me to rejoice in your works. By the deeds of your hands, I shout for joy. 
Now, this is certainly talking about God's works in creation. The psalmist has taken time to look at the billions of sky or stars in the sky. Now, remember, this was before the creation of electricity, and so you didn't have the city lights to drown out the heavens. And so every night, he'd be able to look up and just see the glory of God in the distant stars and universe, or galaxies that are out there. The breath, the smell of mountain air, the trees of the forest, the sea. He's just reflecting on God's work in creation and it is causing him praise. But it's more than just creation. God's deeds and the works of his hands, it's also used to describe God's acts. And so he's probably also certainly thinking about the exodus from Egypt. God preserving Abraham and his line. He's probably thinking about manna in the desert. He's probably thinking about God's work in his own life, personally. God's deeds include all of that. And so my question is, do you do that? Do you take time to reflect on God's goodness and his greatness in creation, in the stories we read about in Scripture, and in your own life personally? Do you take time to just stop and look backwards and say, wow, God has been faithful. God has been good. And so for my own life, uh, one of the things I did while preparing this sermon is I tried to take some time to do this. I just went uh, one day for a walk around the neighborhood here. I was in the office and just took some time. We've got some giant trees right out there just to stand at the base of them and look up and just notice those are tall trees. Those are tall. And that's supposed to point me further and, and to walk just a little bit further down and see the trees that are changing color from that green to that kind of reddish, orange, yellow. And you better get out and do this before the weather starts to really suck, okay? Because you're not going to have a chance soon. Uh, those leaves are all going to be gone. But just take some time to meditate on the goodness of God's creation. But then take some time as well. I, I started thinking about my own life and how God called me out of darkness into his kingdom how God welcomed me into his family. Jesus drew me to the Father. I, I thought back over the, the times in my life when things have gone really great and, and how God had provided for that and how he's got me through the dark times in my own life. And so it is good on the Sabbath day and really any day to take some time to reflect on God's goodness and to praise and worship him for that. Because here's the thing, when you take time to start considering the goodness of God as reflected in his deeds and his works, you're not ever going to find an end. You start listing the big ones, the medium-sized ones, the little ones, the minuscule ones, all of them, there's going to be more than you can handle. That's why he says, how great are your works, how profound or how deep are your thoughts. The idea is that it's more than we got. We cannot summit the heights of God's works, nor can we plumb the depths of his thoughts. But we can, and we should, take time to meditate on all that he's done. And as what happens is that as we consider the limitless love and the forever faithfulness of God in his deeds, his actions, then what happens is that elicits heartfelt admiration and praise that will burst forth from us. When he says that I sing for joy at the works of your hands, that word sing for joy is a word to mean a shouting. It's kind of a, a, it's a dam bursting and a flood of praise just coming out. But not everyone gets that. 
Not everyone understands. Verse six says the senseless man, or some translations that are a little bit more blunt, the stupid man doesn't know. The fool does not understand. I might look at the beauty of the gorge, I might look at the trees, I might experience God's own faithfulness in their life and think, what a great accident. And this is not talking about intellectual capacity. This is not calling these people stupid in the sense that they have a bad brain. They have bad character. They willingly overlook the obvious to their own spiritual failure. They are fools because they clearly see the things that God has made and God has done. They are experiencing it right now and they refuse to acknowledge him as their creator and their provider. You may be familiar with a Christian satire website. It's called the Babylon Bee. And they have a headline that I thought was just hilarious, and it illustrates this perfectly. Um, it says, What has God ever done for me? Asks man breathing air. <laughs> okay, it's supposed to be a joke, right? It's not an actual news story. But it, it's an illustration of what this fool is like. And the psalm says that they, they don't understand that. And it seems like every evildoer and every wicked person flourishes. That's what it goes on to say. They spring up like grass. They grow and grow. Now notice that metaphor of grass. They're springing up like grass. Two things I want you to notice about that. First, just the, the growth of foliage. Okay, That's going to come up later and that's going to be a contrast. So just keep that in mind. But the second thing is this psalm has a theme of height in it. Did you notice in verse 1 it already called God O Most High? And then here it's talking about grass. And it says that these people, they seem to be winning. From our perspective, it might feel like the bad guys are winning. They might, it might seem like they're getting ahead. And maybe you've got people in your life that are like this. A coworker, a boss, a family member, a neighbor, somebody. And they are, quite frankly, I'm sorry if this word offends you, but they are a, they're just a jerk. And they seem to get away with it. And it seems like nobody's stopping them. They get ahead. And maybe you're a victim of their actions. And here's the thing. That's not going to last. That's not going to last. Because even though they grow like grass, why are they not going to last? Verse 8, that's the next thing. You, O Yahweh, are exalted forever. So do you understand? They're like grass. He's like the sky. They're not going to top him. He's still in charge, and he will take care of the wicked in his own good timing, which more often than not takes a lot longer than it would if you or I were in charge. He's a lot more patient than we are, because what does he do with the wicked? He's patient. He was patient with us. He's patient with me. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? He's giving them time Peter says, to repent and to change. The fool, the senseless man, the wicked, they don't have to stay that way forever. By God's grace, they could take off that jersey and join the righteous team. But if they don't, he'll bring an end in his own good timing, in his own good way. He is exalted forever. They may be rising up and they may be doing so by wicked means and they may have done it at the expense of you or someone in your life. But in the end, they're not going to get away with anything. 
God's enemies will be destroyed. They will be scattered. Regardless of what the outlook is now in your own life personally or in our lives corporately as a society, regardless of what that is, the course of human history is flowing towards an end where good will decisively defeat evil. And that's a good thing. That is a cause for praise. So there, we're at the top. We've talked about the righteous, how good it is to praise and to worship. We've talked about the wicked. And then we're just at the peak. You're exalted. And then we just talked now about how the wicked and his evildoers, are, they're going to be destroyed, they're going to be scattered. And we turn the corner and we begin the descent. And the psalmist says that he trusts in Yahweh. And so God raises his horn up like a wild ox. Doesn't that sound weird to you? <laughs> we just don't talk like that. When was the last time you asked, hey, how you doing? I'm great. My horn has been lifted up like a wild ox. It's strange to us. It's strange. Uh, but that's the biblical way. The horn is a biblical imagery of strength and power. It, this is a, a weird uh, analogy, but it's sort of like how we call our muscles guns. I don't know who started doing that, but we're obviously not talking about things that shoot. We're, we're talking about, you know, ooh, our guns, okay? So this is him saying, you know, <laughs> you've loaded my gun. I don't know what you want to call it. But what he's saying is, while the enemies of God are destroyed, he's going to be empowered and lifted up. And he says next that the righteous are going to be like palm trees. They're going to flourish like palm trees and they're going to grow like the cedars of Lebanon. This is, uh, man, this imagery for me, this is one of my favorite parts of the psalm. These trees are supposed to be a picture of nobility, elegance, and stability. I mean, think about palm trees. Even now, we still, when we imagine a palm tree, that usually communicates paradise, right? Hawaii, Southern California, somewhere sunny and nice with a beach when we think palm tree, okay? Same thing in the biblical mind. The palm tree was a good thing. It's a place of rest. It's a place of paradise. And these cedars of Lebanon, man, these are strong trees. They're tall. They're sturdy. They're going to last through the winter, they're going to hold a good snow load. They're not going to be pulled up when the wind comes. And do you notice where they're planted? They're planted in the house of Yahweh. They're planted in his courts. So my wife and I, we recently planted some blueberry bushes. And we are black thumbs, hardcore. And so if you think about it, pray for our blueberry bushes. <laughs> but we really want to give this a good shot. And so we, um, we, we're reading online, we're trying to research... And one thing I learned about blueberry bushes is that the soil really matters. You can't just plant blueberry bushes anywhere, okay? They're, they will fail. The soil has to be acidic, okay? Otherwise, it's not going to happen. So here's my point. The soil matters. These trees are righteous and holy because they are in the house of the God who is righteous and holy. They're holy trees because they're growing in holy ground. Do you realize what the psalmist is doing here? This, this is Garden of Eden imagery that he is starting to pull out. And you'll notice the Bible actually does this 
all over the place. Anytime it starts talking, not anytime, but a lot of the times it starts talking about the righteous, about paradise, about the things that God promises us, it will almost always be using this imagery from the garden. Psalm 23, you lead me beside still waters. Psalm 1, a tree planted beside quiet waters. Jeremiah 17, Revelation 21 and 22. You just, you'll start seeing this imagery everywhere. And what he's saying is that the righteous are going to be like a grove of palm trees and cedars planted in the garden of God. You will be in paradise. You're not going to be an actual tree, of course. It's a metaphor. And they will be producing fruit and resisting decay even into old age. This is a strong contrast. Remember, the wicked spring up like grass. And the righteous, though, are like these palm trees, like these cedars of Lebanon. Now, the words spring up, when spring up like grass and flourish, those are actually the same word. He is making a, as strong a contrast as there can be. And so while the wicked are like, more like weeds that grow quickly, but in the end will get cut back, get pulled up, get thrown away, the righteous are more like these giant redwoods, these giant sequoias growing in the goodness of God and his house. They continue to grow, and it says to bear fruit even in old age. Declaring forever, Yahweh is upright. He is my rock. There is no wickedness in him. And so do you see the psalm actually ends right where it began. It began with saying it's good to praise Yahweh, to declare his goodness. And it ends with a picture of the righteous doing that very thing for all eternity in the paradise garden of God. It's a cool psalm, right? It's a good reflection. What in the world does it have to do with the Sabbath? <laughs> it doesn't say anything about the Sabbath in there, right? Well, remember, the Sabbath exists to help us rest and worship. So the psalm is not about the Sabbath per se. It's about helping us do what the Sabbath exists for us to do. This psalm exists to help us rest and worship in Yahweh, who is exalted forever. What it does is it gives us eternal perspective on the way things are going. And with that, we can rest and we can worship. We can rest because he is exalted and on high. He has got things taken care of. And so we can take time to look back and remember how good he's been. And we can sit and rest knowing that whatever lies ahead, he's got taken care of. He's been faithful in the past. He'll be faithful in the future. So therefore, I can take a day off. I can rest. I don't need to be frantically trying to fix everything in my life and in the world. It allows us to worship because it shows that he is good. He will not allow injustice to reign. We don't have to participate in the outrage culture because we know that God has got this, that he's good, that he's in control, that he's exalted. That whatever you may see happening in your own life or in society, God's got this. No matter how crazy it seems down here, he is up there and he's got it under control. And that allows us to rest and that gives us reasons to worship. And so that's Psalm 92. It's a meditation to help us 
on our own, in our own practice of the Sabbath. And as I conclude, I really do want to encourage you to make the Sabbath a practice in your own heart, in your own life. And to use Psalm 92. For my own family, we, we read usually Psalm 92 on Friday nights together, almost every week. And so as we wrap up this sermon, let me just remind you of two key things, though, for us. I do want you to make the Sabbath part of your life, but I want to remind you of two key things, okay? Number one, and we've talked about these in previous sermons, the Sabbath is not a matter of righteousness before God. We are not held to it in the same way that others were under the old covenant. In Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17, Apostle Paul says that the Sabbath, along with a few other things, were a shadow cast by something solid and real. And the thing that is solid and real is Jesus. Jesus is the one who fully gives us rest. He's the one who makes us righteous before God. He's the one who adopts us into God's family. So what that means for us is the Sabbath is not a have-to thing for Christians. That's the first thing I want to remind you of. But the second, though, is that even though the Sabbath is not a have-to thing for Christians, it is a get-to thing for Christians. Remember what Jesus said about the Sabbath. Mark 2.27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So yes, we should not see it as a legalistic rule that we're bound to, but we shouldn't throw it away either. It's a gift to us. It's there to help us. It was made for our benefit. It is one way that God communicates his love and his grace and his faithfulness to you. My hope is that as we've gone through this series, you've seen the wisdom and the beauty in embracing and practicing the Sabbath. It can, for us, act as a weekly reminder of the gospel where we get to remember what Jesus has done for us, and not in some cerebral exercise where we just kind of try to think about it, but we actually, in the way that we experience the day, get to rest. And that is just a picture of the whole life of rest that Jesus invites us into. It is good for us to take one day each week to literally rest our bodies and our souls in the finished work of Jesus and to worship him for it. And so to that end, for the final time, I would encourage you to make the Sabbath part of your life. And so there are handouts that are on the pews, and um, if you're watching online, I emailed it out to the church body a few weeks ago, and if you would like a copy, you can email the church office and we'll get you one. But this is a practical guide to help you get started in your own practice of the Sabbath. It walks you through the logistics, it helps you kind of think through the details of how to get it started in your own life. And this has been asked a couple of times. Let me just make it clear. It's not one particular day. It doesn't have to be, okay? The traditional Jewish one was Saturday. That's what Olivia and I do with our family. Um, But you can have it be Sunday if that's your thing. If you've got a different work schedule that changes and rotates, then you can figure that out. It doesn't, it's not tied to one particular day of the week, okay? We have freedom in Christ there. All right, enough of listening to me teach about it. Go out and begin making a weekly habit of Sabbath. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your finished work. Thank you that you have given us the Sabbath. Lord, I ask that you would draw any of us who don't know you to you today 
any of us who are not at peace, who are not living a life of rest because we don't know you, Lord, would you please draw any of those people to you right now? For those of us who do know you, may we find our true rest in you. If we've been anxious because we've drifted away from trust, if we've drifted away and forgotten that you are exalted, Lord, would you please remind us of that? Would you bring us back to that truth? Thank you for Psalm 92. Thank you that you are exalted. We praise you. And as we sing right now, we pray that it would be a good thing, that you would help it express our heartfelt admiration for you. In Jesus' name, amen.